0: Please give a warm welcome to Rehan Salam. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out. Uh, and thanks also to Zocalo, uh, to Dulce and Christina and Gregory for being so generous in, uh, in hosting me. Um, it's a tremendous honor and privilege to be here in what is probably very disloyally my favorite city in America – I have not spent more than five days here, which could be why I like it so much. Uh, But I'm actually a really – I should just tell you right now, I'm a really awful Republican in many ways. Uh, One of them is that I've never learned how to drive a car. So when uh, members of my party say, drill, baby, drill, I I agree, yes, drill, drill. Please drill, but I, I, I can only travel by bus uh, or by subway uh, or by hoofing it. Actually, one of my um, more delightful experiences since I've been out here was walking uh, seven miles in the beating sun uh, along the highway. And When I discovered to my chagrin that apparently I was the only person walking the streets, um, the police kind of went by very slowly, kind of wondering if I was up to no good. As it happens, they were probably right, so I kind of you know fully uh, respect and appreciate them for doing that um, but uh, yeah it 's um California is to America what America is to the world. Uh, one thing that I've noticed while out here is that uh, everyone just seems really happy and good natured. And, you know, maybe I'm in the wrong places. I realize, and some of you guys look pretty angry yourselves. But um, it's just really amazing. And, and I was wondering, you know, why is that? I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, "Well, it's because people are out here, you know, pursuing their dreams, basically." Now, granted, there are some of you who are contemplating right now walking out of this talk and moving to Tempe, Arizona. I understand that. I mean, taxes are high, et cetera. But, but still, there's something really magical about this place. And, and that's actually why, you know, for a Republican Party that wants to be a national party, that wants to be a governing party, the fact that there is literally no chance in hell that a presidential candidate will win the state of California in the foreseeable future is a big problem. The last time a Republican uh, won the state, as you guys know, was in 1988. But when you actually look at the demographic breakdown of that you know, kind of Republican victory in 1988, had you projected 92 demographics onto the state in 88, Michael Dukakis would have won. In fact, if you had projected 92 demographics onto the country as a whole, uh, it's quite possible that Michael Dukakis would have won. Uh, in fact, Michael Dukakis today would have actually, you know, seemed like a you know kind of pretty, kind of sane, sober, kind of conservative kind of guy that lots of uh, lots of Republicans could go for, uh, because the political center of gravity in this country has shifted. It's shifted really, really fast. So I want to talk to you about the Republican Party, but to situate that, I want to give you a slightly uh, contrarian, slightly offbeat theory of what's happening uh, to our economy and how inequality and how wage stagnation has really kind of played into the present political discontent. A lot of people, a lot of my lefty friends have been wondering for a long time, why is it that you haven't seen this kind of big left-wing political revolt in this country, Uh, you know, despite the fact that you've had stagnant wages for a very long time, despite the fact that you've had a really sharp increase in inequality, you know, for – you could say, the past decade and a half. Uh, and you know it's interesting, because the inequality picture is actually kind of complicated. Part of it is explained by the fact that you have a far more single adult households in this country. So the composition of households has changed. And that means that you, know, you expect to see a different inequality picture. But a far bigger part of it, I think, is that you've had what I like to call a consumption compromise. If you look at different groups of Americans, their spending patterns are very different. And their spending patterns determine how they actually experience the economy, how they actually think of the economy. I think of this as their kind of narrative experience. So there is a wonderful study conducted by these two guys, Christian Broda and John Romales, two economists at the University of Chicago. And they were looking at, well, what does the inflation rate look like if you're spending sort of on different things? And they looked at the people in the top 10th of the income spectrum. People in the top 10th of the income spectrum spend a lot more money than people in the bottom 10th on things like in-person service, that is, hiring nannies, uh, eating restaurant meals, etc. They also spend a lot more money on goods that are produced domestically rather than goods that are produced overseas. And so interestingly, over the last 15 years, they've had a really high inflation rate. If you're in that top 10th, your inflation rate has been in the neighborhood of 8 or 9%. That's really really high, much higher than the inflation rate as stated by, you know, the CPI. But if you're in the uh, bottom 10th in terms of income, you spend your money on lots of different things. You spend your money, you know, on food and apparel primarily. And you know, when you look at those goods, the inflation rate has actually been very, very low. The inflation rate has been in the neighborhood of two or three percent. So, if you're someone who's making a pretty modest income, you're living in, say, you know, the environs of Fort Worth, Texas, um, you're actually seeing your purchasing power grow at a pretty healthy clip, despite the fact that you have this relative wage stagnation. So you're not necessarily going to be upset about the way the economy is going. You're going to feel like the economy is working for you. But then something happened all of a sudden. Uh, you know, around 2007, 2008, you saw a big spike in gas prices. And at the same time, you saw a big sp- a spike in the price of food and also, all of those imported goods that are sold at you know, Walmarts across the country that are manufactured in China, you saw a big spike in the price of those things as well, those essentials to kind of living a decent, working-class, middle-class life in this country. And so then suddenly people found you know, this consumption compromise, which they didn't necessarily think of very self-consciously, has suddenly come undone. Uh, and suddenly they're feeling their incomes being eaten away, and suddenly they're feeling the sense of panic. Then on top of that, you had the housing bust. And what the housing bust did is it took a lot of Americans' housing wealth, which made them feel maybe more prosperous than they were, uh, just really vanish without a trace. So naturally, you've seen this really dramatic change in the political landscape, and you're going to see lots of politicians who are going to be struggling for the next 10, 15 years figuring out how do we undo this damage how do we recreate this thing that we lost that we didn't even know we really had? Because when you look at that consumption compromise, it was a product of a lot of really accidental decisions. There was no American politician or decision maker who said, you know what, China is going to become a manufacturing powerhouse that's going to lower the the price of apparel. Uh, There was no real specific decision that said that, uh, you know, food is going to be quite inexpensive, you know, for this kind of 20, 30 year period. Um, When people were talking about biofuels, they wanted to do something that was going to help the country and help ease our dependence on foreign oil. What they didn't realize is that would have these unintended consequences on the price of foodstuffs. So, you know, this is stuff that, you know, because you didn't know how it happened, because it didn't take one flick of the switch, really remaking that consumption compromise is going to be all but impossible. So you're going to have a series of second-best solutions, and this is the stuff that Republicans and Democrats are going to be struggling with over the next few years. So, again, um, you know, that's just one way to situate how different people feel about the economy, how different people experience the economy. And it should help us understand a little bit why the Republican Party has been so successful until recently. They've been really successful because they've won a very big share of the vote of non-college-educated white Americans. In 1940, non-college-educated white Americans were over 80% of the population. That really was America right there. Right now, however, it's about 48% of American adults over the age of 25. And if you're looking at the total population, it's obviously an even smaller share, and it's a shrinking share. Uh, Now, you might be thinking, well, that's a pretty darn broad group, non-college-educated white Americans. It is broad, but it's also a kind of useful group for analytical purposes because uh, this is a group that, um, you know, you can track over a long period of time and that despite the fact that it has a really, really big spread in terms of income and wealth, it's a group that has a lot of shared concerns and sometimes a lot of shared cultural anxieties. Uh, you know, Bush in 2004 won humongous majorities of white working class voters. He won this, these groups by, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 30% of the vote. He actually won white working class people who were making over $50,000 by an even bigger margin. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what separates white working class voters who are voting for Democrats versus those who are voting for Republicans? There was a big Pew study after the 2004 election that was asking exactly that question. And they found that the big thing that separated Republicans from Democrats at those income levels was their attitude toward their own economic future. It was their economic optimism. Uh, Working class people who vote for Republicans tend to think things are going to get better. They tend to feel like they are in control of their own economic destiny. They tend to think that the economy is pretty fair, that corporations are making a fair and reasonable profit, et cetera. So, you know, they also tend to come from intact families. They tend to be non-union. They tend to have an experience of the economy that tells them that things are basically working. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of the message that many Progressive Democrats have been offering that the economy works in a fundamentally unfair way just didn't really gel with them. These are also people, again, because they felt prosperous, even though sometimes their wages were stagnant, they felt like they actually had a lot to lose. So when people talked about a tax increase, even if that tax increase wouldn't necessarily affect them directly, they felt that, you know, this is something that I need to be worried about because what's going to happen when I'm making a much larger income? It's going to hit me. So there was this actually, uh, this set of aspirations and this kind of sympathy that actually changed the way that they felt about the economy. Whereas if you're looking at Democrats, these are people who, you know, tend to be a little bit more class conscious. Uh, That happened through a lot of different uh, avenues. Traditionally, it happened through labor unions that gave you a sense of, you know, a conflict between labor and management. It's very interesting the way that these broadly psychological things actually mattered a lot more than uh, income alone. It's also true that when you're looking at people who are working for a certain type of organization, say for a small business, uh, that is vulnerable to lawsuits, you just have a very different experience of the economy from when you're working for a large corporation or for a university, where you actually don't see the direct impact of that kind of thing. So narrative experience matters, uh, matters a lot. So you know when you're looking at the uh, <clears throat> So when you're looking at the kind of future of the economic landscape, it's very, very uncertain right now because, you know, we really don't know where we are right now. We don't know how we're going to get out of this current economic downturn. We don't know what the economy is necessarily going to look like in the next 10 to 15 years, but we see some broad signs. For example, there's good reason to believe that robust population growth is just going to be a fact of life in this country uh, for many years to come. That means that though we've seen a housing bust right now, chances are the country is nevertheless going to get denser. What does that mean? Well, it's useful to look at, say, Western Europe, where you already have you know, kind of much denser societies. In Britain, it takes seven years of annual income to purchase a home. In the United States, it takes 3.5 years. We're going to be moving further in that direction. Uh, you see a lot of Americans who are over the age of 25 who are living at home with their parents. Uh, this is something that is very traumatic for a lot of parents. Uh, <laughs> and it's also something that we're probably going to see a lot more of. Uh, There is this guy who runs the company Toll Brothers, which is a company that was really at the heart of the housing bust. They basically were in the business of manufacturing McMansions. And when a journalist was chatting with him a couple of years back, he said, you know, what do you think our children, what's going to be their economic situation, what's going to be their housing landscape? And he said, they're going to be living at home until they're 40 years old. Then they are going to move out and they're going to be spending half of their income to buy a house pretty much like the one that they're living in with you guys. Um, And, you know, that house that now costs a ridiculous $1 million, it's going to cost $4 million. That's one future that's imaginable, and it's a future that's going to necessarily be very different. You know, one thing that makes America demographically distinct is our relatively high birth rates. But high birth rates are in part a function of being able to have this kind of expansive middle-class life, being able to have this elbow room, being able to kind of leave your parents' home at a kind of relatively early age strike out, and, you know, begin anew. We are actually seeing the country becoming less mobile than it has traditionally been. Uh, actually, rates of kind of in-migration and out-migration from states have actually slowed down. So we're seeing these real deep structural changes to the culture that you know, are going to be kind of very unpredictable in terms of how they're going to affect uh, the political landscape. Excuse me. So these slow motion changes are things that you know, it's very hard to see at the ground level, but they've been happening for a long time. Uh, in 2002, two friends of mine, Rui Teixeira and John Judas, wrote a really wonderful book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. The problem with this book is that it came out in 2002, and we all know what happened that year. It seemed like not only was there not an emerging Democratic majority, it looks like there was a submerging Democratic minority, and that the Republican Party would emerge as dominant for perhaps a generation. People were saying much the same thing in 2004. But when you look at the argument they were making, the the truth is that they basically got a lot of things right. One thing that they were arguing is that when you look at the the people who voted for George McGovern in 1972, they were a tiny minority of the population back then. Not tiny, but a minority. Uh, George McGovern was heavily backed by minority voters, and he was also heavily backed by social liberals who were upper middle class, college educated. That group has been expanding just as the non-college-educated working class has been shrinking in this country. So now you could say that actually that McGovern minority has become a McGovern majority. This has been a big structural problem for Republicans for a while now, ever since the Clinton era, when you had large numbers of suburban Republicans in places like Philadelphia, Los Angeles, other big cities across the country, turning in the direction of the Democrats as the Democrats moved in a kind of more moderate uh, direction on economic policy and as the Republicans were responding to having this more working-class, culturally populist base. So that's one of these kind of long-term changes that was really masked by the 2000 election the 2000 election was an election that Republicans, frankly, shouldn't have won. You had uh, a period of, you know, peace and prosperity. You had a popular Democratic president, yet somehow Al Gore managed to screw things up. And the way that George Bush managed to do this was by getting to halfway. On a lot of issues where Republicans were traditionally very weak, a lot of core domestic policy issues, uh, George W. Bush talked about these issues at great length. So for example, in education, he was just as trusted as the Democratic candidate. He also talked a lot about Medicare prescription drugs. He talked about a lot of issues that traditionally Republicans didn't feel very comfortable talking about. And he knew that he had to, because in the post-Cold War environment, in a way, the president was expected to be kind of a super governor of the United States. As an experienced governor, he seemed like the right choice. Uh, But then 9-11 happened. And 9-11 changed the political dynamic by allowing Republicans to be, their, be themselves. It allowed them to change the subject back to the areas where they felt the most comfortable rather than the areas that Americans were thinking about most. So while Americans were thinking healthcare, education, and jobs, Republicans were thinking national security and taxes. Now, the thing is that, you know, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was first elected president, national security and taxes were the core issues, particularly taxes. A median income family of four in 1980 was paying over 10% of its earnings in income taxes. Today, that same median income family of four is paying 5.6% of its income in taxes. That's a lot less. And that means that federal income taxes aren't going to be the thing that's going to be your burning issue, necessarily. And that's something we're seeing in this election right now. The heart of John McCain's domestic policy has been a series of tax reforms. But, you know, when that's no longer at the top of your list of priorities, you want to hear about a lot of different things rather than your taxes. You want to hear about health insurance premiums. You want to hear about the quality of schools. You even want to hear about an issue like traffic congestion. When Al Gore was talking about traffic congestion in 2000, a lot of Republicans thought, you know, this was totally ridiculous. I mean, how is this a national issue? But oddly enough, it's an issue that really resonates with a lot of Americans, particularly conservative Americans, particularly, um, you know, Americans with children, because it actually has a direct impact on the amount of time they're spending with their kids. Now, this goes back to the consumption compromise. The average commute in the United States is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 minutes. But actually, as you go to kind of lower middle class and working class Americans, their commutes have actually been inching up, because you have people who want to have larger homes, so they're actually traveling longer distances to get to their jobs. That means that they really depended on low gas prices. So when those prices spiked up, that actually had a big and direct impact on their ability to lead the kind of lives, the kind of middle class lives that they had expected to lead. So, you know, back to sort of this brief history of the Bush era, Uh, fundamentally, the Bush Republicans, you know, they had these broad ideas about domestic policy, but they actually didn't do a huge amount of spade work about these issues at a national level. And when 9-11 happened, they were, of course, very preoccupied by these core national security questions. So a lot of these things fell to the wayside, and they were convinced that they were going to be able to win elections despite that fact. But in 2004, they saw, you know, we really need to connect with these anxieties of the working class voters who are increasingly our base. And they managed to win an election by winning the votes of, for example, married white women and, again, the white working class. But then upon coming into office, the issues that President Bush emphasized, that is, you know, for his second term in 2005, the first thing he talked about out of the gate, uh, you know, having achieved his mandate, having won a majority of the vote, was Social Security reform which a lot of folks refer to as Social Security privatization, and understandably so. He was talking about Social Security privatization at the exact moment that lots of defined benefit pension plans were evaporating. And a lot of the opposition to the plan came from white Republican men, exactly the people who were going to be his core supporters, his most diehard supporters. Another thing happened. The other big domestic policy agenda for President Bush in 2005 was immigration reform. Now, this was not a core priority for these white Republican men, for these married white mothers, for these working-class people who put President Bush in office, who made the difference in states like Ohio. And so there was this real profound sense of alienation and confusion over what exactly was going on. These aren't the issues that connect with us where we live. Yes, there was a tax cut that may have made a slight difference in the margin. The best thing that the Bush tax cut did was have a child tax credit, you know, mightily expanded. But you know this is not something that's really a game changer for us in terms of the way that we're living our lives. So there was this deep confusion that the Democrats were able to draw on. The 2006 election was, I think we'll all agree, primarily about the Iraq War and about the general sense of incompetence um, you know, that seemed to plague Republican Washington at the time. But in a bunch of key states, particularly if you look at a state like Ohio, the kind of all-important state, Sherrod Brown was able to win the election by pushing a message of economic nationalism, by pushing a message that's centered on economic populism. So finally, that consumption compromise that had been so effective in keeping working-class Americans on the side of conservative politicians – was actually moving away, and these new economic anxieties were becoming sufficiently potent that lots of people who were you know, basically conservative were willing to give the Democrats another look. The Democrats also proved more kind of coherent and effective in a lot of other ways by being united in their opposition to Social Security privatization. And Bush was basically caught flat-footed at this point. In 2004, he talked a lot about the ownership society, which was actually a kind of very attractive idea. But the problem with this ownership society concept was that it actually didn't involve building wealth for working and middle class people. It really was more about helping people preserve their wealth and actually slightly extended at the margins. Uh, but it, again, it wasn't a true policy game changer that people actually saw in the context of their daily lives. The Democrats, in contrast, you know, were, over this period of time, going through a real transformation on domestic policy issues. There was always a lot of frustration with Clintonian triangulation. And now a lot of figures in the party who wanted a kind of more robust government intervention saw this as an opportunity to build a progressive infrastructure in Washington, and to kind of try to tackle some of those economic problems using big government, using interventionist solutions. So they seemed to at least be talking about the issues that Americans were worried about most, whereas Republicans, again, were talking about issues that worried Americans most in 1980. There was something a little ridiculous, a little off about it, <clears throat> and yet you kept seeing Republicans marching off a cliff into the 2008 primaries. You kept seeing them talking about issues that appealed only to a kind of narrow clique of Republican primary voters, rather than to the swing voters who used to identify with the Republicans but found themselves increasingly turned off. This brings us to John McCain. To my mind, a really tragic figure in American life. John McCain is someone that I admire very greatly, and I oftentimes think to myself of how different the world would have looked had he won in 2000. John McCain tried to extend the Reagan majority by creating a new McCain majority that would, increase this, that would include the same Southern conservatives as the Reagan majority and some of the, those Western libertarians, but that would also include the suburban independents who were interested in kind of pragmatic policy solutions. The 90s were a period of tremendous success for Republicans, ironically enough. Uh, the combination of Clinton and Gingrich in Washington meant that you saw tremendous policy experimentation at the level of the states and at the level of the cities. And so in a way it seemed natural that the you know, presidential candidate of the Republicans in 2000 should come from that world, should come from that world of people who were able to collaborate with Democrats, from that world of people who really were concerned not about the issues of 1979 and 1980, but rather the issues that affected Americans most at this point in their lives. Issues, again, like traffic congestion, issues like the quality of the schools, issues like the cost of health care. And John McCain also had the advantage of not being a kind of regional sectarian figure. He was someone who was a truly national figure, having spent 23 years of his life in the Navy. Uh, so he didn't have a lot of those associations. And he was someone who could reframe conservatism away from this kind of narrow sectarianism to uh, you know this more kind of civic-minded patriotic outlook that would appeal to a kind of larger majority of Americans. But as we all know, he lost. And he became a kind of leader of the opposition uh, during Bush's first term. He tried to criticize the Bush tax cuts from a kind of traditional Eisenhower Republican perspective. Uh, But he also expressed a lot of skepticism about some of Bush's policies in the War on Terror. He was a very interesting figure who a lot of Democrats saw as potentially one of their own. But then, you know, over uh, the years between 2004 and 2008, of course, he felt a need to reposition himself. He went away from being the leader of the opposition to being someone who was very closely tied to President Bush and President Bush's policies, which in large part explains the bind that he finds himself in right now. Um, But John McCain, even had he been the John McCain that he was in 2000, couldn't really represent the future of the Republican Party, given that this is a party that is a – white working-class party, a party that is going to be culturally populist in its DNA, uh, a party that is not necessarily interested in a lot of the issues that John McCain is interested in. The Republican Party needed a reformer this year, but the kind of reform that John McCain has always been associated with have been reforms like campaign finance regulation, patient's bill of rights, issues that don't necessarily connect with these working and middle-class Americans the way that an issue like health care does. Uh, So I think that this was always going to be a really rough election for Republicans. It didn't necessarily have to be as bad as it eventually turned out. But I think that it actually is raising a lot of questions about where the party goes next. And I think that, um, you know, for me, I think that you see a very effective argument coming out of this politics of the consumption compromise. That kind of dark landscape I was painting for you guys about an America in which people are you know, living with their folks until they're 40 and have an impossible time buying a house and feel their economic circumstances very straightened isn't necessarily our future. But it's a future that actually is in tune with uh, an environment where government intervention plays a much bigger role in our lives uh, and where you, know, you need sort of uh, a lot more planning uh, in accordance with, you know, for example, building a greener economy and using industrial policy levers and regulatory levers rather than tax and spending levers. So in a way, the most effective argument that Republicans have is the argument that we will help preserve the middle class way of life by keeping the key components of a middle class way of life within your reach. It's interesting because you know, even lots, uh, of, you know, lots of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, are very resistant to the idea of handouts. That was you know, the reason why welfare reform was such a potent issue. It's not because of any hostility toward people who are beneficiaries of welfare, but rather it's the sense that the welfare system needs to be based on reciprocity and a sense of fairness. This is something that Bill Clinton understood very well, and this is something that Republicans used to understand very well. Uh, And it has to be the basis of kind of reforming the social services state, and it has to be the basis of the future Republican domestic policy. Uh, So for example, you know, the gas prices issue connected with people because it said, we're going to keep the cost of your commute reasonable, but we're not going to do it by subsidizing you. We're going to do it by intervening at a different level and being sure that there's not corruption and collusion. We're going to see to it that we have the refining capacity that we need to make this happen. We're going to see to it that we don't have excessively burdensome environmental regulations. How do you extend that, however, to other aspects of public life, for example, to housing and to health care? That's much trickier, and Republicans haven't done a lot of very sophisticated thinking on that set of issues. For example, if you look at John McCain's, uh, McCain's health care plan, it was focused on health care affordability. But even his advisor, Doug Holtz-Eakin, acknowledges that it actually isn't going to deliver quality health care for lots of people. Uh, a lot of you guys have been following Sarah Palin very closely, I imagine. And uh, Sarah Palin has become a lightning rod for criticism. But I often wondered, how different a candidate, how different a campaign would it have been had Sarah Palin had issues she could have run on? That is to say, you know, when, when Sarah Palin first joined the campaign, she was asking you know, the various domestic policy advisors, what do I tell someone like my sister, who runs a gas station, uh, about the quality of her health care? What do I tell people who have health care, but it's a very low quality, and they want to improve the quality of that health care at a reasonable price? The McCain healthcare plan didn't really have answers for her, and so when she went out on the stump, she wasn't really able to sell the plan. She had to actually sell the culture wars, uh, and that's something that you know uh, it really put her in a box. I say this in part apologetically because I was someone who was a huge Sarah Palin booster. When, uh, before she was selected by John McCain, I thought, she is exactly the kind of person who represents the future of the Republican Party. She's exactly the kind of person you ought to choose. Now, of course, I'm eating my hat a little bit. But I think that, you know, when you look at her and her biography, she's someone who really does symbolically reflect where the Republican Party is today. And I mean that in a good way. She's a working mother. She's someone who has accomplished tremendous things despite, you know, also raising a family of five. She's someone who lots of Americans who are actually trying to juggle lots of different responsibilities can identify with. Conservatives are often accused of you know, living in an Ozzy and Harriet fantasy. Uh, but the truth is that you know, most conservative Americans are similarly juggling those responsibilities in their lives. And they have lots of respect for people like Sarah Palin who, who are doing their best uh, you know, kind of to have fulfilling working lives and also fulfilling family lives. Uh, and these are issues that public policy has to be sensitive to. This is actually the great strength of uh, Barack Obama's Democratic Party. They're very, very good about talking about these issues. They're very good about talking uh, about the way that family life relates to economic life. Uh, But I think that the the Republicans have some room because actually they have some room to craft solutions that are going to be more effective because they're able to talk more frankly and forthrightly about family structure and about how that affects society. And they're also uh, able to talk about – they're able to talk about the way that a certain narrow ideological vision of the way that women and men should lead their lives actually doesn't fit the way that real Americans work and live. I really hate the term real Americans. It really creeps me out, particularly when Sarah Palin goes and says that people like me from Brooklyn aren't necessarily from the real America. Uh, you know, I'm from the real America. I understand what she's saying. I kind of get what she means, but, you know, that, that's actually very hurtful. Uh, but, but, I mean, but it is true that, you know, real Americans, Republicans and Democrats, are actually dealing with lots of con- contradictions, lots of confusions. Uh, they might have very conservative values, but they might be experiencing family breakdown in their own lives. Uh, and so there actually is a lot of fear and anxiety uh, about sort of these central issues. Uh, and it's something that I think that, you know, politicians need to be sensitive to. So basically... When you're looking at the Republican Party of today, you're looking at a party that has a base that's very out of tune with its elites. You have a base that is, you know, consists of these white working class Americans, and you have elites who are really fixated on the issues that they were fixated on in 1980, national security and taxes. How are you going to change that? How is that going to be reconciled? I think you're already seeing that happen at the level of office holders. You're seeing people like Eric Hanner and Mark Kirk, who represent suburban districts, some of whom might actually lose. Uh, you know, in the coming election. But you see people who see that the kind of tired, shop-worn solutions that were being peddled by the presidential candidates don't really connect with people, whereas issues that are tackling things like the cost of living do connect with these voters. So they're understanding that there's this kind of yearning need for a new agenda. You're also seeing uh, a figure like Mike Huckabee, who was really despised by a lot of elite conservatives, but who really connected with uh, lots of American evangelicals. What's interesting is that, you know, Mike Huckabee actually uh, was attacking malefactors of great wealth, Uh, yet he was also a staunch social conservative. It was a very strange politics that we haven't seen in this country in a long time, and I think we're likely to see far more of it. Mike Huckabee's great weakness was that he actually didn't have a very strong policy profile, Uh, but I actually think that's something that he's going to be developing over time. What he did have was a series of instincts. And I think that those instincts are going to be translated into politics. And those instincts are again are the instincts of middle American conservatives rather than coastal conservatives. Um, I actually th- would love to open it up to questions if you guys have any. Great, uh, thank you, folks. Let me just scoot up here. <laughs> So, uh, as you heard, we'll now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight. And we want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. And just remember to say your name. And also at this time, our buckets will be going around, our donation buckets, so we do appreciate any and all support. We have a question up front here. Uh, yeah, my name is Tom. And is there any room in the Republican Party for limited government? I didn't hear anything in what you were talking about uh, that addresses limited government in any way. In fact, it almost sounds a little bit more like big government because we're trying to regulate the economy so much. That's a fantastic question. And I think that you know it's interesting because it all depends on the frame that you're using to think about limited government. Uh, In the United States, we think of our government as being smaller than governments in Western Europe. But actually, when you look at the command and control aspect of it, when you're looking at the invisible uh, subsidies that happen through the tax code, then actually our government is comparable in size to governments that you see in Western Europe. The difference is that it's happening through corporate paternalism rather than through public paternalism. So you actually have a lot less transparency, in a funny way. There was a funny debate that happened in the Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton over health care. Perhaps some of you guys follow this. The debate was Hillary Clinton wanted a mandate, a mandate that said that everyone needs to buy health care. And Barack Obama said, no, we shouldn't have a mandate. If you can afford it but you don't buy it – That's your concern. We're not necessarily going to fine you or take any other punitive action. And then Paul Krugman, who might be a favorite of some of yours out here, uh, wrote an interesting column in which he said that Barack Obama is spending as much as Hillary Clinton, but actually he's not getting to universal. Except that – wait a second. Slow down for a second. That mandate involves spending money. It just means that you're not spending public money. It means that you're spending private money by saying that if you do not spend your private money – you are going to be fined or you're going to be punished in some other way. So I think when you look at it that way, we actually do have this very bloated state, but it's just not transparent. We're lying about what's actually happening with that money. And another thing is that those hidden subsidies are actually going to the wrong people. For example, John McCain has been ferociously attacked for his health care plan because it says, we're going to curb that tax subsidy for rich people because I don't see why they need that money. Whereas poor people, I kind of get the idea that they need that money. But the thing is that you know, so many of our tax subsidies are going to people who don't need them. So I think that when you look at this broader view of the tax subsidy state, then the limited government argument starts to look very different. It starts to say, if you want to achieve a social goal, Pay for it openly and honestly rather than mandating that small businesses and individuals do the government's work for the government. So, you know, for example, one of the things that we propose in our book, Grand New Party, is a program of wage subsidies. That sounds like big government. I understand that. But when you're comparing wage subsidies to a minimum wage, think about it for a second. What you're saying is that... In order to get people who are ex-offenders, in order to get people who are at the low end of the labor market, people are having a hard time getting on that first rung, it makes sense to uh, you know, get them working, give them a higher wage than they necessarily would get in a pure market clearing situation. But if you're saying to Walmart, you've just got to pay them X amount, well, then they actually aren't going to hire a lot of these folks. Whereas if you say, you know, we recognize this as a social goal, we're going to fund it openly and honestly through the tax system. That's the way to do it rather than say, you know, you're a bad guy as a small business owner for wanting to hire people. It's a much more coherent system. So, yes, at the front end, it looks like you're actually spending more money. But in truth, government is actually more limited because government is saying we're going to take on a couple of core tasks that we can really perform adequately and successfully. But we're not going to actually force other people to do you know, the job that we want you know, society to do for us. We have a question over here to your right. Hi, good evening. Uh, you don't look like someone who's a working, working class white American. Can I ask you why you're a Republican? <laughs> I'm sorry, why I'm what? Why you're a Republican. Sure. Um, I will try to give you a not super long answer to that question. Um, basically, um, there are lots of Republicans who are not non college educated white Americans. Uh, I'm one of them. Uh, but I think that you know part of it is just you know kind of biographically, it's just contrarianism. I feel like I grew up in a place where um, you know, lots of people were very reflexively left of center. Uh, they reflexively believed that uh, you know, government is the right solution, that you were a good and decent person if you believed that government was the solution to various problems. And that didn't sound quite right to me. I read this amazing book that I recommend to all of you by a guy named Christopher Jenks uh, called The Homeless. Christopher Jenks is a left-winger. But it was a very interesting book about the origins of the homelessness crisis. Where did it come from? Was it the product of kind of heartless policies? No. It was actually the product of lots of really good policies. Who believes that people should be institutionalized against their will? No one believes that. I mean, you know, that, that's terrible. Uh, you know, who believes that skid rows, uh, you know, should exist across the country? No one likes skid rows. They're, they're ugly. They're a blight. Uh, you know, who wants to be in favor of things like cage hotels. Cage hotels were places in the old-time skid rows where you would rent a room that wasn't really a room. It was literally a cage in a big room. And you would rent it for a tiny amount of money. And people who were alcoholics would often go there so they could have a little bit of privacy and security. But then lots of American cities banned these cage hotels. And guess what? then a lot of people didn't have this space where they could go and drink themselves into oblivion. And so they actually were doing it on the street. This was something that was incredibly tragic, but again, it was a product of these totally unintended consequences of really good benevolent policies. So the reason why I gravitated toward the political right is the sense that you know, sometimes things that sound like good and attractive policies aren't necessarily. But at the same time, the reason why I sometimes disagree with my comrades on the right who believe firmly in limited government um, is... Sweden, actually. Um, Sweden is a country that has a very low rate of child poverty compared to us. So people, a lot of people on the left think, ah, that's because they have really generous, great government policies, right? Well, maybe, but it's also because at the age of 15 in Sweden, two thirds of all kids live with both biological parents. In the United States, the number is half. In Germany and France, the number is around two thirds. So you're telling me that that's not going to have any effect on child poverty? Of course, it has a huge effect, and so there's this delicate lattice work between family life and inequality and child poverty that you know it, we don't fully understand. And sometimes you know we we introduce policies that we think are going to help, but that actually that might gum up the works and actually make the problem worse. At the same time, you know clearly Swedish policies aren't actually undoing the family there. So you know conservatives who say that welfare necessarily destroys families are clearly wrong. So uh, the reason I'm a conservative is because, you know, I believe that we ought to be very kind of humble about what social policy can accomplish. The reason why I think of myself as a reformist conservative, someone who believes in using intervention sometimes is because I think that, you know, there are things that we can do to slowly change the culture and move it in the right direction. We a question to your left here. Bruce Murray. You mentioned Mike Huckabee and what he represents. Do you think it would ever be possible in this country to have a three-party scenario where we would have, for example, a Christian Republican Party similar to what Mike Huckabee represents and then maybe another party of, say, moderate libertarians of the the kind that exists now in the Republican Party? Do you think this would ever be possible? Uh, Well, first of all, I know a lot of moderate libertarians who are good friends of mine who would love that to be possible. Uh, And um, I think that it's, unlikely because I think that the structure of our political system is such that you know, you're going to have a two-party system uh, because you have first-past-the-post. You have a lot of first-past-the-post countries like Canada where you actually do have multiple parties, but I think that's, that's very hard to imagine uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that you know, the regulatory levers of government are so attractive and powerful that people are going to want to capture them, and a more fragmented system is going to make that hard. But what it means is that our parties are going to be what they've always been, which is very awkward fumbling coalitions that contain lots of contradictions. So what you're talking about you know, as a kind of Huckabee party, it's a party that would be similar to, say, Christian Democratic parties in Europe, a party that has a broad sectarian identity that is socially conservative, but that embraces big government to some extent. I actually think that when you look at a lot of evangelical voters, they actually are very sensitive to high taxes. They actually share a lot of the concerns that the moderate libertarians care about. Um, but it's just... Partly a matter of rhetoric and tone. It's also partly, you know, about. it was talking about this consumption compromise and about making sure that a middle class life is within people's reach. That's something that theoretically could appeal to both moderate libertarians who are very resistant to stiff regulations uh, and sort of, you know, kind of outsized government interventions that are designed to actually, you know engineer the population sort of to behave in certain ways, but it's also going to appeal to kind of people of modest means who believe in upward mobility. I think it's an upward mobility agenda that's actually going to resolve some of those contradictions. So that means that Mike Huckabee has to kind of slow down some of his, you know, kind of bash the rich, bash a guy like Mitt Romney who, you know, was an entrepreneur uh, rhetoric, but it also means that someone like Mitt Romney has to be sensitive to the fact that the Republican base is hurting right now. You know, I was talking about how Republican voters traditionally have been economic optimists. The danger for Republicans politically is that, guess what? In an economic climate like this one, there aren't a lot of economic optimists. So I think that that, that's an unlikely scenario. The hope is that there's some way to reconcile this. But actually, a more likely scenario might just be a lot of evangelical conservatives increasingly going to the Democratic Party, assuming that it is going to be a big enough tent to allow them to be a part of it. Okay, one more over here to your right. Um, Frank Casares, um, what bothers me about the Republican Party as it exists now is the dominance of the far right and the evangelical far right. It seems like John McCain basically sold his soul in order to win the primary, but then when you get into the general election, uh, I think even most Republicans are somewhat liberal leaning, liberal leaning, um, sort of social social liberals. And fiscal conservatives, along the lines of Schwarzenegger and Jesse Ventura, and that seems to have disappeared um, like myself. I, you know I would like a strong defense, I want conservatisms, but I'm indifferent to uh, gay marriage. Uh, I just don't like gay divorce, but uh, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I think that you know, I, 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 I sense a lot of anger from a lot of erstwhile Republicans about the direction the party has taken, and I understand it. Um, one thing that's very striking is that I think that you know, McCain is thought of as running this really rough culture war campaign, and I think that's right to a certain extent. You know, When you saw that third debate, look at him talking about Bill Ayers. He was more uncomfortable talking about it than Barack Obama was. It's not something that he wanted to talk about. It's something that he felt he had to do. And there's something very depressing about seeing someone like that, who has led this kind of long, impressive, in many respects, pretty honorable political career, feeling the need to do that. Uh, But at the same time, has John McCain talked about gay marriage very much? Not really. When you compare, when you look at the salience of that issue in 2004 versus 2008, it's remarkable. Because actually, the gay marriage issue has really changed. Once a gay marriage referendum was defeated in Oregon, The whole issue seemed to change at very high speed. You know, think about what would the debate about gay marriage have been like in 1984 or 1988? There wouldn't have been a debate. Anita Bryant wasn't that far in the past. So when you think about how far and how fast the country has moved already, you also see social conservatives moving pretty far and pretty fast. If you look at the younger generation of social conservatives, they're actually a lot more pro-life than their parents, but they're also a lot more inclined to support something like gay marriage and equal rights for gays and lesbians. So that's still going to be social conservatism. It's still going to be something that's rooted in some of the kind of religious traditions that are still so robust in this country. But, you know, it's definitely going to look different, and it might be more congenial, it might be less congenial in some ways to these kind of old-school Republicans who have become uncomfortable with the culture wars. But I also think that, you know, fundamentally, you do have this large group of people who are real devout social conservatives, people who really do identify with Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin to me was a very interesting parallel to someone like Barack Obama because Barack Obama represents the aspirations of lots of Americans. They want to be like him. They identify with his lifestyle. They identify with the issues that he cares about. He represents a kind of attractive future for a kind of multi-ethnic, uh, kind of more urban, more urbane society. Whereas Sarah Palin represented someone who, similarly, was a butt-kicking mother who was able to actually really juggle and flourish and succeed at doing lots of different things, and who really did seem like a kind of pragmatic, solutions-oriented politician. Again, her identity has become something very different since then. But but I think that you know that group of Americans is going to be represented in our politics pretty much no matter what. And the Republican party has become the most effective vehicle for that. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I do think that, you know, the problem is that our politics have become so angry and so ferocious. uh, And I think that that's not necessarily what a socially conservative politics or a socially liberal politics has to look like. So I am optimistic about that because I think that some of these issues that have become so hard edged are going to be less. So at the same time, you know, in the, in the 50s, politics revolved around economic issues. Why was that? Uh, you could say it's because labor unions were actually so powerful. So that was actually a very effective way to rev up your base. Uh, whereas back then, over 80% of Americans were regular churchgoers and considered themselves devoutly religious. Ironically, as the country becomes less religious, religious issues become a subject of our politics because religion becomes a more effective way to mobilize people. You see what I mean? So, I mean, that's one of the ironies of our time. Despite the fact that actually the society is becoming more liberal and more secular, we actually have more of this resistance from people who actually disagree with that direction. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting and surprising. Question to your left. Hi, my name is Mary. Um, I just wanted to know what your perspective was as to the role of um, – Reason and openness to truth in what you would see as the new GOP, especially considering criticisms um, from both left and the right with people like um, uh, Al Gore, Scott McClellan in their books, um, criticizing the Bush administration, and especially considering um, recent public speaking blunders of Governor Palin. (laughs) That's a fantastic question. By the way, you guys, I love answering questions and I hate public speaking, so it's a real pleasure to do this. Um, I think that uh, the Republican Party in recent years and the leadership of the Republican Party has been an embarrassment, has been an embarrassment to a lot of Republicans. And I think that you know, this idea of uh, you know, kind of reality-based policymaking um, is a very potent one. But I also think that you know, to some extent, um, you know, if you look at President Bush and you've, if you look at the way that he came into office, uh, and if you look at the kind of things that appear to be as priorities at the time versus what was the case two or three years later, it was radically different. Uh, and I think that you know, there really was the sense of momentum, the sense that they were in command and that they were changing the world that I think blinded them in many ways. Um, and I also think that you know, kind of simple things like having the right staff in place, simple things like that really make a huge difference in terms of the quality of decisions that, that get made. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's a very tough one to answer. For example, I think that, you know, if you look at the surge and if you look at what's happened, you know, kind of around uh, the kind of shift in strategy in Iraq – is an example of reality-based conservatives coming in and saying, "Guess what? We're in a dire situation, and we need to turn things around very quickly." But they also, you could say, came in rather late in the day. <laughs> uh, you know, it would have been great had they been, you know, on the scene earlier on. But I mean, there's a deeper question in your question. I think, you know, regarding, you know, for example, the fact that many people feel more strongly and emotionally attached to Sarah Palin in light of her blunders than they did before. So does that mean that they worship? Uh, irrealism or that you know, kind of, they kind of resent a kind, of, you know, kind, of, uh, you know, kind of reality-based world. I don't think that's it exactly. I think that it's, you know, our politics, uh, you know, every four years we have a presidential election and it's a time we bare our souls and we really argue about the kind of country we want to be. Uh, you know, there are many people I know who, when John Kerry lost in 2004, were weeping. They were weeping for a lot of reasons, but one reason they wept is because they just felt alienated from their own country. Some of them were weeping because they thought they'd get great government jobs. But I mean, but, but there are a lot of them who you know, kind of felt, you know, I believe in evolution. <laughs> you know, I, I believe in scientific reason. And, and I, I just kind of reject these people who seem to be hostile to these things. But, you know, that also masks the fact that, you know, the, a lot of these debates are, are kind of really more symbolic than real. So I think that... You know, for example, the stem cell issue in 2004 was actually a very effective issue for Kerry, despite the fact that actually, you know, President Bush wasn't saying, I want to ban stem cell research. He was saying that public funds, you know, maybe for a while we should put a moratorium because this is a kind of controversial issue in our society. Just like a lot of people think that public funding for abortions, you know, let abortions be legal, but public funding, you know, is a thorny thing because people's tax dollars are going to something that they feel very morally uncomfortable with. I'm not saying that argument is right, but I think that it's an argument that's at least plausible. So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, because we are a more secular country, you actually see secular-minded people becoming more self-conscious. As a group, they're thinking of themselves more in the way that evangelicals think of themselves as a kind of self-conscious group that actually wants to have a voice in our society. So I'm not giving a very good answer to your question, I'm, I'm, but like, I think that you, know, you see this kind of funny context where actually you see new orthodoxies emerging. So you know, I think that fundamentally this is a country that has a lot of public religiosity. It always has been. And so that's going to be a part of our lives, and some people are always going to be uncomfortable with it. We never had a tradition of anti-clericalism in the United States, as you did in France and, and Italy and other places places where you had this kind of overweening um, presence of the church in public life. You know, these are places where you had communist parties that were kind of, you know, devoutly and passionately atheist. I think that's changing somewhat because, you know, public religiosity becomes a bigger deal in a society that's less religious because it becomes an identitarian marker. And I think this actually relates to a lot of what you're talking about, reason, truth, and openness, Uh, you know, because, you know, one man's reason is another man's, you know, kind of godless, you know, secularist orthodoxy. Okay, straight up the middle. Hi, Bob Stern. Four years ago when John Kerry lost, the Democrats assumed that uh, either Hillary Clinton or maybe John Edwards would be nominated. Um, if McCain loses this year and realizing in four years is a long ways away, whom do you think the Republicans should nominate in 2012 and who do you think they will nominate? Um, that's a question I've really been struggling with recently. Um, and you know, it's very hard to say. I mean, to me, the heart of the problem is Republicans always changing the subject, right? I mean, the country wants to talk about healthcare, education, and jobs. And we, Republicans, always talk about the same old stuff that we've been talking about for literally decades. And, and it's tired. So to me, the question is, who is the Republican who can actually talk about healthcare, education, and jobs in a plausible and convincing way? Um, and I think that actually what you're seeing happen is this real collapse in intellectual self confidence on the right. You see lots of senators, a guy like Judd Gregg, for example, who won't listen to a healthcare plan unless it actually has the word universal in it because the terms of the debate have shifted. There's this real possibility that we've entered a progressive realignment and that the Republican Party is going to become a Me Too party. So I think that, um, you know finding someone who can make a persuasive case for a kind of smaller government, yet kind of reformist, yet active solutions that really address the problems that, you know, kind of affect Americans where they live is the most important thing. And I think someone like Bobby Jindal is someone who can actually talk about healthcare in an effective, intelligent way that, you know, is accessible and that actually does reflect lots of deeply held conservative principles. So he's someone that I really admire. At the same time, He is very, very, very socially conservative. And uh, that's, you know, he has views that are actually so socially conservative that it actually, you know, makes him very conservative for Louisiana. So, you know. So, you know, for the country, I mean, is it possible that he's going to be too, you know, it's possible. But he's someone that I certainly think is very attractive. Mitt Romney is someone who became a national laughingstock uh, over the course of this campaign by seeming so profoundly insincere and disingenuous in his mad scramble to the right. But I sometimes think if Mitt Romney had tried to run as Mitt Romney, that is, as a turnaround artist, someone who is not ashamed of having started, you know, Helping start a bunch of million-dollar companies uh, and having restructured them, and actually having been part of this kind of entrepreneurial boom that changed the face of the American economy, uh, someone who could say, "I understand this economic downturn. I understand why the bailout is flawed. I understand." You know, in Michigan during that primary, it's amazing what he managed to do because you know he had a connection to Michigan. Obviously, his father had been the governor of the state, but you know, who remembered that? It was really that he was able to go to auto workers. He was able to go to these these guys and say. I understand what you need. I understand the way that Washington is getting in your way of flourishing. I'm going to roll up my shirt sleeves and we're going to figure something out. Now, if he was able to apply that same logic, similarly, the healthcare plan in Massachusetts is, to my mind, actually not all that great a plan. But it was an example of him actually Butting heads, working with the Democratic legislature and trying to figure something out. That's something that Americans desperately want. Uh, you know, in Utah, this deep red state, uh, the stuff that they applaud most when Senator Bennett goes out there is when he talks about his widened Bennett health care plan. They don't understand the details of it necessarily, but they appreciate the fact that this guy is a staunch conservative Republican who's working with a liberal Democrat to actually get something done. So I think that you know, Mitt Romney, in theory, if he stops you know, trying to be a caricature circa you know, 1976 of what a conservative sounds like or looks like, you know, maybe he could actually get back on track. So those are two people that I think as, as being you know, possibilities. And then, of course, some people say Sarah Palin is going to be – the leading candidate in 2012, and the Sarah Palin of my imagination—someone who actually really you know connects with middle-class, uh, you know, working mothers, someone who really understands you know kind of the cultural populism—but also, you know, Sarah Palin's big issue in Alaska was a windfall profits tax on oil companies. <laughs> Washington Republicans weren't in favor of that, and she wasn't able to talk about that on the campaign trail, obviously, because that put her at odds with her running mate. So who knows? Maybe she'll be a very interesting and quirky candidate who's going to have a real domestic policy agenda. That would, of course, involve her actually reading the papers. So you know, who knows? I I hope that she starts, but you know, and I do have a lot of faith in her. So we'll see.